Your mission is our mission. Changed my life. More energized, a little bit more focused, a little bit more committed. Help me find meaning in my life. Infuse my life with so much more meaning and direction. For giving me back meaning to my life. Wealth of knowledge, amazing human being, energy is always very welcoming. It's about changing people, about changing lives through ideas and through teaching and through learning. For inspiring me. My life still is applied has made a tremendous impact on me. Look at these esoteric texts and find myself, find the story of my life. We at the Meaningful Life Center are totally dedicated to providing you with all the necessary resources, tools, and life skills to discover your indispensable mission in this world. I always walk away with my mind blown. Please partner with us. Donate generously at giftofmeaning.com. Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 381. A very happy Hanukkah. Tonight is the first night of Hanukkah, which will be the opening theme that we will be discussing. This program is dedicated in merit of Baruch ben Yaman ben Menucha Lena and Miriam Baschaya Sara Altois, and Yukasil ben Leia Rochel and Rochel Basliba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todris ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rachel Altes. So, Hanukkah, Tovshin Pei Beis, another Hanukkah is upon us, demonstrating and capturing the awesome words of the Ramban, Nachmanides at the beginning of Pasha Bahaleischa, where he speaks about Neres Hanukkah, he says, Halalu, these flames will never be extinguished. In contrast to the flames in the Beis Hamidosh, even though it was a ner tamid in the word of the verse, in the Pasuk, it should be an eternal flame. Yet, unfortunately and tragically, the flame did pause, did come to a stop after the destruction of the first temple and then the destruction of the second temple. And it's almost 2,000 years that those flames have not been reignited and lit. However, Aneris Halolu, Hanukkah lights have lit and illuminated the Jewish people and the world all these thousands of years through the darkest moments and the brightest ones as we light the Menorah. So when we light the Menorah tonight, it's the first thing to think of is that, that eternity that tells us that nothing can extinguish the Hanukkah flames. Why? How is it possible that the Hanukkah flames, which are really a result of just rededicating the menorah that was the, in the temple, be stronger than the lights of the temple itself. Which adds a second question is why they ate when in the temple it was only seven. And two more questions. Why is it lit al Pesach Beis by the door facing outward? And in the evening, when the sun sets, all different than the way it was in the Beis Amikdash. And one answer answers all those questions. Because the Menin in the Beis Amikdash, its theme was illuminating with godly light everything outside. That's why the windows in the Beis Amikdash were shkufim atumim. They were narrow on the inside and wide on the outside because the Beis Amikdash 
God needs light? No, the world needs light. But that was a menada that was shining when there's brightness. What happened once there was the temple was desecrated and defiled by the Greeks, by the Syrians, by the Greco-Syrians? Then they couldn't light the menorah. Hanukkah demonstrates that even darkness cannot stop that light. It's the light that comes through darkness, and light that comes through darkness is indestructible. Like the halacha says, the Jewish law states that Ashtar if you have a contract, so a contract, a legal contract, can be challenged, it can be appealed. However, once it's been appealed and upheld, you can no longer challenge it again because it's, because it's now withstood the challenge. We don't know when the menorah is lighting the base of this what will happen when there's darkness. Hanukkah demonstrates that even though it was dark, and even though they couldn't find even a crucible of pure oil, they did find it, and it lit for, and burned for eight days. So now we have indestructible light. In the language of the Pasuk in Kehelis, Exodus elaborates upon, Yisr and Ha'er min is the, the power of light that comes from darkness is even, excuse me, is even stronger than the light that shines on its own. Like the Palak, it says, B'mokim shabal etshuva emdim, tzadikim gumurim en yecheilim l'ameitsham. Then a place where Balchuva are, because the Balchuva went through the darkness and came out of it, he's in a, a completely different qualitative place than Sadiqim Gurm, who never were challenged by the darkness. So, as such, Hanukkah carries that power which teaches us indestructibility. And in our own lives, you could say, Ner Hashem Nishma Saddam, a human being, the soul of a human being is a flame of God. But you don't know how powerful that flame is unless it's challenged. Because it's shining. Okay, it's shining in regular time. But what happens when it's challenged, when there's a darkness, when there's a crisis, there's a trauma, there's a setback, and it still continues to shine, or you discover deeper strengths to allow it to shine, that is the nearest of Hanag, and they, they are indestructible. And that's why they're eight, not seven. Eight symbolizes transcendence. Seven is still the structure of Ishtalshus, the seven midas, seven days of the week, the sabbatical, it's lit by the outside, facing outside, because its whole point is to light the, the outside, and Mishatishka Chama, when it gets dark, lighting the darkness. Very different than the Menera and the Beis Amigdash. So though it originates from the Menera, its message is far different and far deeper in that sense. Now, we want both qualities, obviously. We want Lasovet Tzadikai Beti Yufta. Tzadik should have also the quality of Tshuva, so when Mashiach comes, we'll have the Beis HaMikdash and the Menera, and we will also have Neres Hanukkah. A discussion whether Neres Hanukkah will still be lit, and when it will be lit, and so on. But the concept definitely will be there. So those are both qualities that Hanukkah, that Hanukkah and the Beis HaMikdash represent. And the lesson to us is very clear. So with that, let us go into another question, which is regarding the oil. Happy Hanukkah, Rabbi Jacobson. In yeshiva, I was taught the Torah is compared to water, and chassidus is compared to oil. Therefore, is it applicable to, say, applicable to say that in some way, since the mitzvah of Hanukkah is celebrated with oil, that Hanukkah is also a festival of chassidus? I'm sure you can put it in better words than me, because you are very good at what you do. <laughs> Thank you. May Hashem give you, us, give you and us the best Hanukkah present possible, which is the full revelation of Mashiach, in the physical world, as we have been promised by God? The answer is absolutely yes. 
I was just qualified that Torah is compared to water. Primus Torah is compared to oil. The expression actually is Rose Daraisa, the secrets of Torah, the esoteric is wine, and Rose Diraze, the secrets of the secrets, is compared to oil. And these are all dimensions of Torah, the same Torah, Torah Achas, but just like there's a soul and a body into everything, there's the Nishmasa Daraisa and Gufa Daraisa, the body of Torah and the soul of Torah. So oil indeed represents that, and that's one of the explanations that were given at Yutas Kislev, which comes just a few days before Hanukkah, is the Rosh Hashanah of what? Of oil of Teda, Primus Teda. Just like oil is, in, is concealed inside the olive, you need to press it. The same thing with Primus Teda, it's concealed within the, the, the Teda, and it needs to be elicited. Ein Mason Razi Teda, El Misha Bekirbe. You don't give the secrets of Torah unless someone is concerned, someone is doyig, he's worried, he's like pressed, he feels pressure. That's what reveals the inner dimension. As the Rebbe Rashab said about the Alter Rebbe, that it's difficult to say, but Peterburg, meaning his, his imprisonment for that, that led to the Geula, the redemption of Yitzhak Kislev, was a form of like the oil being pressed, the olive being pressed to produce that inner dimension, that rich oil of Shem Zayizoch that comes out of it. So that is definitely the connection. The connection to context, what we said earlier, is the same idea. Before Hanukkah, they had olive oil. It was also pressed. But Hanukkah was a very particular pressure. It was the defilement. It was the challenge that the Jews faced in the time of Hanukkah, that the Greeks were challenging them, that uh, the other order, to forget that God's tater, that is God's laws, and that was, the, that was the war. The war was over the spirit of Torah, the spirit of Judaism, not the physicality, the inner dimension, the connection to, to God. And that was the victory of Hanukkah. In their mitzvah er, the flame of a mitzvah and the light of Torah, that ner Hashem nishmas adam, that the soul of a human being like the flame should burn, which is the concept of the olive. So the pressures that Hanukkah were around re- released that deeper oil both physically and spiritually. Chassidus says that Shemin is Chochmah. Chochmah is like a, a spark, a very concentrated point, but it's revealed through the pressures that they were facing them, and the pressures we face today all lead and bring us into de- discover deep, deeper resources and deeper strengths. Another question, dear Rabbi Jacobson, the Rebbe Rashab once commented and said, we are lamplighters. Yes. We are lamplighters. Can you please expound on the apparent connection to Hanukkah? Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So the Rebbe Rashab, we have the expression, Neiris Lahoyer, talked about the students of Tenchetim, but in general, that even the general, Achsidim, particular Neiris Lahoyer, candles to illuminate, flames that illuminate. That wherever we go, we are walking flames, we are walking menorahs in order to illuminate and warm the environment around us. So, of course, that's the connection to Hanukkah. The Rebbe Friedrich Rebbe says, We have to listen closely. We have to listen to what the flames tell us. It means we learn the lessons from the flames. And the worst first lesson, perhaps, at least one of the lessons, is that we have to be like those flames. That we have to, wherever we go, we should bring light. We should illuminate the environment. 
That is the essence of why we're here in this world. The world on its own is a chayshach koflim mechupel, a double darkness, spiritually and many other ways, with a certain hostility to what that which is spiritual and that which is godly. And we come here to illuminate this world. So that's the, the obvious connection. Now this is true all year round, especially Hanukkah, where Hanukkah, the mitzvah, is near Hanukkah, the mitzvah of lighting the candles, to take it to heart that we have to be like those flames. And just like those flames, each day they grow, meaning each day we add another one, Milan Bekadish, the way we illuminate our environments, have to also be in a way that increasingly grows, and all the other lessons that the Neris and the flames can offer us. Okay. The Maccabees and Hashemarim were zealots who murdered their fellow Jews whose secular activities they didn't agree with. If the Maccabees were in New York City today, they would kill people for playing soccer in the park instead of using the time to study Torah. That's what zealots do. Zealots are wrong. Why should we celebrate them on Hanukkah? So first of all, we, we, your information is not exactly accurate. Zealotry is correct, is not acceptable in the Torah. So, yeah, there's a Torah, there's halacha, how to deal with things, not in any extreme ways. Pinchas was one ex- exception as we've discussed many, many times. So the, the Maccabees came to defend the desecration of Yiddishkeit. We're not talking about they're going around and uh, killing people because they're not keeping mitzvahs. It was a real gzeda at the time, a real decree that the Greeks who were, in control, who were dominant were impacting. And you see what happened. They desecrated the temple. They were desecrating everything that was sacred. They wore the Misyavanim, the Hellenites, that were also influenced by it. So the Maccabees went to war, as I said before, the main war was a spiritual war. It wasn't a physical war. The Greeks didn't want to kill the Jews. It wasn't like Haman by Purim, they wanted to obliterate, like, like Hitler, Yemach wanted to do. It was a spiritual war, which is why we celebrate it, not so much with physical food and meal, and, and like we do Purim, like the Levush writes, but we celebrate it with lighting flames. That was the battle. That's what they fought against. It had a component of physical war because the, the Greeks were, went to war with the Jewish people and they had to defend themselves. And they wanted to redeem the Beis Amigdash that was defiled by them. But as Chassidus explains, you don't, see, you don't see the wars mentioned. But the main mitzvah is not celebrating the victory of the war. Like, for example, the other victories that were won in Jewish history. Here, the main victory was a spiritual one. Now, there are different details written about the time that happened, and there were, there were perhaps some people who were zealous, but that's not what we're honoring here. We're honoring here the sanctity, the light, the spirit of Torah Mitzvahs. And we would never celebrate zealots walking in the park, as you put it, or elsewhere, and hurting people. What do we do? When, what is the lesson for, for us today? We look around the Jewish world and all world. If you see someone that is not following Torah Mitzvahs, God forbid, our job is to illuminate their lives, inspire them. It's not, you don't see this approach. If we were celebrating that approach, you'd see people doing what you're saying. That's not the approach. That's, God forbid that should be the approach. We do it by shining light, exactly what Hanukkah teaches us to do. Is there anything wrong with giving Hanukkah presents? On the contrary, it's a minute to give Hanukkah presents. Hanukkah gelt, of course. That's a minute that goes back Generations giving Hanukkah guilt, the different reasons given for it. 
And if that includes presents. Some, some say you can only give guilt. No one, no one says only money. You can give money, you can give presents, and you see the custom. Now, I'm, I assume you're trying to suggest that this may be similar to what other presents given in the season, the holiday season, that are not Jewish or based. So what's the Hanukkah precedes actually that uh, secular holiday or that religious holiday. So we begin with Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the time of, of giving, of sharing, and we see how the Brabeim behaved. They gave Hanukkah guilt. Did they give Matanus? It's a good question. I have to look that up. I don't remember seeing that. But I don't see an issue with giving Hanukkah presents. Um, and um, and I, if there's more information on this that someone has that I don't, I'm not familiar with, please share it. And I will share it with the public. Okay. And one final question, Hanukkah related. A modern Hellenist claim. Is religion stopping from Jews from contributing to society? There are so many Jews who have made, there are so many Jews who have made enormous contributions to society in medicine and science, but the vast majority were not religious. Can it be said that religion is stopping many from contributing to society, which would be a modern Hellenist claim? Is there any truth to something like that? So just to embellish on the question, yes, the Hellenists would have claimed that, that the Jews have to be involved in secular society and contribute accordingly. <clears throat> Instead of just being involved in Taylor and Mitzvahs directly. So a few responses to this. First of all, we are of the firm belief that when you do a mitzvah, and when you study Taylor, it changes the world. Not just the religious world, and not just religious activities. It refines the very world because the whole world was created for that purpose. The Teda was created with the Teda. God looked into the Teda, created the world. The Teda is like a blueprint of existence. So when we existence is aligned with Teda, it's the best possible existence. As that refinement took hold in existence and made and allowed for different developments in science, technology, and medicine to take hold. What does the Zayar say? That in 1840, in the year Tov Kuf, there would be a revolution, not just in the wisdom above, of Teda wisdom, there'd be also an explosion of secular wisdom, of scientific wisdom. Why? Why is that the case that you see that in that period of time there were more inventions, more discoveries, then a thousand years before that, even though there were always discoveries, but accumulated in a far faster way all in that short period and just continu- continuing to accelerate till this day, is the Mizraya says, because this is the, the, the heavens opening up as a preparation for the Gula. And the way it's explained is because thousands of years of Torah and Mitzvahs and Mesiris Nefesh refined the world. That's why we have freedom today. That's why we have so many developments whether it's in technology, in politics. As I said, freedom itself is probably the greatest contribution of all. It didn't come out in a vacuum. It's not just a miracle. It came from all these years of work. So that's first of all, that the Jews contributed. You start from Avram Avinu through the Chesed and Tzedakah, and Tzedakah, Mishpat, and justice, and virtue, and so on. The Teda changed and refined the world to the point that it even extended and gave birth, as the Rambam says, that Christianity and Islam also helped pave the world toward Mashiach. Whether the world recognizes it and gives awards 
to Rashi and the Rambam and the Arizal and the Baal Shem Tov and all the Rishenim and Achrenim and going back to Tanoim Amaroim and Rabboni Savaroi and Geinim and so on. It's another story. They may not recognize it, but that doesn't mean it didn't impact it. Famous story with the Magid and Beis Yosef. The story is told about several people. They said some major Chiddush in Teirah. And the students were amazed, astounded by this revelation in Teirah. But then one of the students was traveling and he heard a simple person say the same Chiddush in a Shir Nashul. Relatively simple person. Came back to the Baal Shem Tov, or to the Magid rather, and said, the Chiddush that you said was like, uh, was, was, was uh, unprecedented. How does someone who's far on a lower level in learning than you able to say that? And he explained because once it's stated and brought into the Avira Elam, so to speak, into the atmosphere of this world, then it's easier, paved the way. Now others can come and come to that same understanding, even without hearing it originally from the person who was Mechadish, who innovated it. Because we change the world with our activities and with our teachings and with our actions. And today, that alone is a scientific fact today. The butterfly effect. That a butterfly flutters its wings in one part of the world and it can create a typhoon in another part of the world. And the same thing with just in general, the microscopic world of subatomic particles, DNA. Things that are once we never understood that everything in this world is connected. And as such, when you do something in one place, it affects everything else. That's the first thing. The second thing is, yes, there were Jews that did go into the secular sciences, whether it's medicine or, 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 or um, physics or other sciences. Remember, science at the end of the day is understanding God's mind, how he created the world. Chochmah Sa'ilam is not man's wisdom. It's man's effort to understand how God created the world. So those that went into it, Maimonides was known, Rambam, also as a great doctor. So I don't see the contradiction at all. We make the enormous contributions. Every contribution is critical in Teda Mitzvahs. But to say that religious people are not contributing to society would be a real, not just an insult, simply a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not correct, simply wrong. Because the foundations of society are not just science and medicine. The foundation of society is morality and virtue and love and spirituality and values. What would the world be without that? Okay. So moving along to Parshas Miketz. We go from Hanukkah. This week is also Parshas Miketz. So. I just want to point out this is a good time to announce being that this is episode 381, you can imagine that we've covered a lot of topics until now. All of them can be found, all archived at our website, dedicated particularly, specifically to this program, My Life Chassidah Supplied. Go to chassidahsupplied.com and you can easily search by keyword or phrase any topic, really covered so many topics. This, since life continues and people have all kinds of diverse issues, so new topics continue to come up or sometimes the same topic, but with another angle. So things like Pasha Miketz, I've addressed at least seven or eight times, being that this is the eighth year. So I tried to not repeat that which was discussed already. You can simply go back to previous episodes. And there's a full rich array of material that you can benefit from. There you can also have the forum where you can pose any question 
and submit. No matter what it is, nothing's taboo, nothing's off limits. And I'll address it, hopefully as faster than slower, because there is a backup. But I thank God I've been able to get back on track. We're always a little behind, but that's a good thing. And as we continue to go through, plow through these questions. And there you can also find the contest submissions, essays, creative submissions of the previous years as well, as well as other Hasidic resources. This is a good opportunity as well, since it's Hanukkah, and at the end of the year, we are, at the end of the secular year, I should say, we are running a, a crowdfunding campaign called giftofmeaning.com. Please go there. It begins officially on Tuesday afternoon, on the second day of Hanukkah, and continues to run for 36 hours. So please contribute generously. This program, as all our programs, are free. They take work. They take resources. So your partnership is vital for us to be able to succeed. So go to giftofmeaning.com. It's already open, so you can do that right now. Think of it as a form of Hanukkah Geld, a contribution that, is, that demonstrates the partnership that we have in order to be able to continue this program and expand it and many other programs that are all listed there so you can see exactly where your money is going. And I thank you in advance for that. Okay, so with that, let's go to Miketz. I should add one more thing regarding the campaign. If you can share it, I would be deeply appreciated to share it with friends, family, anyone else you may know. If you really want in the giving mode, you can also create a team which means getting a few people together and achieve a certain goal, whatever goal you like. All this comes from my heart and from representing all the people that listen and benefit from this program and many other programs that we reach literally now, especially in the last year, two, year and a half, we've literally quadrupled our output to all of people of all backgrounds, the different programs from mental health issues to counseling to, to teenage mentoring to... Um, dealing with, uh, dealing with um, training the next generation of leaders, in addition, of course, to the existing programs and their expansion. So thank you again. Okay. So let's go to Parshas Miketz. Again, questions that have not come until now, in previous years. Can Pharaoh's dream about the seven cows and the seven stalks the seven fat cows being swallowed by seven emaciated cows, can it be interpreted interpret as the seven generations of Chabad Rebbes when Torah, Mitzvah's inspiration and direction were plentiful? That they should be stored, their Torah should be learned diligently as means for survival during a potential darker seven generations after Gimel Tamas. God forbid, that's my quick response to that. To say that the seven plenty is compared to that, why not? Not that I've seen it anywhere, but fine, you can say that. But to say that now we're in a state of emaciated, yes, there is a concealment. But to say it's seven generations, where do we base that on? We are hope and believe that Mashiach will come any second. So we have to look at it this way. Those seven generations continue on. The seven generation of the Rebbe, the Rebbe said that everything that he did continues on. So we're in the seventh generation, if you were to put it that way. Yes, we may have more challenges to access it, but I wouldn't use that muscle at all. If you want to use in general the context, 
that when, that when there's a time of famine, when there's a time where there's no giluim, or I should say there's concealment, that we should store up in times when things are plentiful, for sure. But I would not apply that to generationally in any way. Okay. But, yeah. If Yosef really cared about his father and was curious and concerned if his father was still alive, why didn't he ask his brothers right away when he recognized them? Meaning when they first came to Mitzrayim. Why did Joseph have to torment his brothers with an elaborate scheme and not, not just reunite with them and his father? To a little more detail, why did he first send for Binyamin, then hide a goblet in Binyamin's belongings and falsely accuse him of theft? Then he made this dramatic theatrical ordeal. Okay, everyone, dim the lights, curtains, drum roll, please. Ahem, I am Yeshef, your brother. Okay, person being a little entertaining here, fine. Although maybe Yeshef couldn't control himself from hurling false allegations against Binyamin. False allegations was his modus operandi. He had a history of falsely accusing his brothers of eating Avram and Achai, treating family like slaves, etc. Yeshef seemed to be a dishonest and disingenuous person since he was always full of... Why do we leave him and not believe Potiphar's wife? Okay. I'm not sure this went a little off track here. Um, Yosef, Yosef was a tzaddik and there's no lies and no deceptions. And on the contrary, the Torah tells it very honestly how Yosef was withstood all the challenges and so on. I find it odd that someone would criticize Yosef with the person who was the victim. Though he didn't see himself as a victim, victim of such an ordeal that his brother sold him into slavery with almost killed him and all the suffering that he had. So I'm not sure what you have, what kind of beef you have with Yosef. So let's keep that out of the discussion here. I read it like I always do read people's comments, but I just at the same time qualifying that's a good question. Why did he go through this whole process? That's fine. That question is legitimate. Now, we always have to go back to Teira and understand Teira as medaberes belyenim, I mentioned before that Teira is a blueprint for creation, for existence. Medaberes belyenim, means it's really a book that talks about things up there, divine things, spiritual things, cosmic matters. And it hints to things below. In other words, the Torah does speak in the language of man, which means in personalities that actually lived in a certain time and behaved a certain way. But the Torah's primary story is a narrative is the inner story of God's blueprint. And each character and each personality and each narrative and each interaction is, lives on within, our, within us right now. So everything from the beginning of the brothers' very selling of Yosef, which is also odd. The jealousy, the selling, we spoke about this in previous, last week and in previous programs, needs to be explained. As well as this whole modus operandi, this whole process that Yesav put, put, put them through. The Mitla Rebbe has a long mimer called Druz Gviya Kesef, which is the goblet, the silver, the, the silver goblet that he put into and hid in Binyamin's backpack explaining what this means, Beruchins. And there's other Maimarim that talk about it. 
So we see there's a process, and I'll just briefly state the following. This interaction between Yosef and his brothers, beginning from back in Pasha Vayeshev, Echov, that his brothers were jealous of him when he told them his dreams, it all symbolized a deeper cosmic story. And the story is the story of history. The story that Yosef, even though Yehuda was meant to be designated to be this tribe that would bring the kings to the world, the leaders and the kings, including David HaMelech and Mashiach, from Shevet Yehuda, though it was necessary that it go first through the process of Yosef. Yosef represents Talmud, Yehuda represents Maisa. Like the Gemara says, that you need both tracks. Talmud is study, Maisa is action. Which is greater? So the Talmud says, Talmud Gadol Shemevil De Maisa. Yosef comes first because Talmud teaches us about the quality of Maisa. Ultimately, Maisa, Yehuda, Heida, Bittel, Malchus, will elevate higher than Talmud. But now Talmud has to direct. The Shvatim did not necessarily know that. They thought we're ready to go to Mashiach. They thought Yehuda, Maisa. But the Ebeshtah had a different plan. It has to go first Mashiach ben Yesav, then Mashiach ben David. So Yesav becomes leader and it comes in a difficult way like any leadership comes through darkness, just like the Jewish people themselves had to go through Egypt, Golis Mitzrayim, in order to become a great nation and receive the Torah. So in a microcosm, Yesav goes through that, and then his brothers follow. There's a famine, and they all have to go down to Egypt, including Yaakov, ultimately. So the story is all the story of life, the story of finding redemption in the dark place, transforming the world, making a betachtenim, not just in Eretz Yisrael, but from the darkest, Ervis Haaretz, from the depraved land of Egypt that represented the depravity, the immorality of, of life, Egypt being the superpower. So the whole process, first of all, Yosef going down in that fashion. And then, when he sees his brothers, Yosef knows that there's a deeper story going on here. And there's a need for Yosef and Binyamin to unite. They were the two brothers from, from Rachel. But the, again, the union can't just come simply. So it comes through Gvi Kesev, as the Rebbe, Mitla Rebbe, explains the significance and symbolism of that, that's the level of Malchus connecting with the level of Yesod, or Yehuda and Binyamin. Why does it have to come in this way? Because again, we're transforming things from the darkness. It doesn't come in a regular fashion. And all that was meant to lead Yaakov down to Mitzrayim. But before that, we have Vayigosh Shalov Yehuda, next week's chapter, with Yehuda and Yosef. Back to Yehuda and Yosef. Yehuda confronts him. And Yehuda serves as what? He's ready to serve as the Oriv, as the guarantor. So you see the, 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 the playing out of a, of a whole narrative. Yehuda, Yosef, Binyamin. And that finally leads Yosef to reveal himself. Because you have all the players in place. Yehuda having to acknowledge that Yosef is leader. And doing so as a result of Binyamin, because Yehuda would never have done that had Binyamin not been at Yosef not challenged them. They would have gone back, that's Yisrael. But you needed the union of all these different levels, both in Ruchnius and ultimately playing itself out in Gashmius. So that explains the deeper narrative, the deeper story. This is just a brief, brief ex- expression of it. But ultimately it comes down to that later the two nations, the two kingdoms would split. Malchus Yehuda, Malchus Yisrael, again, Malchus Yehuda is Yehudi, Malchus Yisrael is primarily led by Yosef. 
Today we know that all the Jews are mostly from the two Shvatim of Yehuda and Binyamin and Levi because they were the Kahanim and the Levim. So you see again, all these players come out and play themselves out in our lives as well. So ultimately, it comes down to a different divine energies as they all get united, well first divided and then united till the time when Mashiach comes and be Nasi, David Nasi, Avdi Aleim, that David Melech Yehuda will be the dominant one and even Yosef will join together with him like one two tree, two pieces of wood that will join together as one as we read in the Haftarah of Pasha Vayigash okay when Yosef at Sadiq before he became leader he was first servant by Patifar then he was thrown into prison in a humiliated way due to the accusations of Petifer's wife. And we see that Yosef, the word Vayeshadis is used, that he like served them. So what, what is the significance of Yosef being thrust into these darkest places? And being subjugated first to Petifer, then to the butler and the baker. Well, the significance is, as I said before, the Pasuk in Kehelis says, as from an Evid, from a servant, became a king. The point is that transformation of the darkest into the greatest light. That's the story of Yosef in one sentence. Yosef Chassidus explains is Yisod of Atzilus. He carries the energy of, Atzil, of Yaakov, Tiferes, and Chesed and Gvura, Avram and Yitzchok, into Biyah, to Bri Yitzir Asiyah. Because Yisod is the Mashpia, like we see Mashbir Bar, he was the one that sustained everyone by running and leading and directing the grain industry, including his own brothers, including Yaakov, because he drew, he tra- channeled the energy of Atsilis into where into Biyah, which relative to Atsilis is like Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim Vigvulim, a narrow place, a darker place. That was Yosef's role. So he had to enter there. He couldn't remain a shepherd removed from the material world. He had to enter there and enter there in a very dark way. First as thrown in a pit and then ultimately sold into slavery, but different in prison. And then starts the revelation as he interprets the dreams, the beginning of this week's Pasha, and then becomes Viceroy, Mishnah Lamelech, running the whole grain industry and turning Egypt into a superpower. So you see how Yosef, Yisod, goes into Biyah. In Biyah he suffers, but then he transforms it, which is also part of the narrative I mentioned before. Abinyam comes into play, Yehuda comes into play, Yaakov comes into play. That's why Yosef had to go through this type of ordeal. But ultimately he becomes Mishnah Lamelech. And through that he has the power to bring his brothers and his father back to Mitzrayim, give them Metava Oritz, as the Pasha concludes. Next week's Pasha, rather, not this week's Pasha. The best of the land, and they live there. Yaakov lives his 17 best years, as we learn in Pasha Vayechi. And then comes the next challenge, the next chapter in this narrative, in this saga, 
the story of Golis Mitzrayim. But you see, the story really is our story. We all have a Yosef within us. We all go through in our own way these challenges, hopefully in a way that's not as painful. And we all come out stronger. That's the key that we have to remember. We become leaders. We become mashpim. We become people who sustain others. And that's the purpose of it all. As Yosef says later to his brothers, don't be, don't, uh, you did not bring me here. God brought me here in order to sustain you, the world, to bring blessing to everyone. To illuminate the world, as the story of Chanuk, as the Shalosh says, that, this, that the, the Yom Tevim, like Chanuk, is hinted to in these parshas, even though these parshas are long, long before Chanuk, but as I said, the Torah precedes the world. So the Ruchni is the story, the spiritual story of the Torah precedes existence. And therefore you can find hints even to events that happened later in Hanukkah in these weeks, in these weeks Torah portions. Okay. One follow-up to, uh, to something that was discussed last week. And that is should yichus matter when it comes to shidduchim? So here's the connection. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, in the last week's Pasha we learned when Yitzchak and Rivka prayed for a child, well, last week meaning back to Pasha Teldus, actually, so it's a few weeks ago. Hashem answered Yitzchak's prayer, as Rashi explains, it was because Yitzchak was holy and from holy parents, and Rivka was holy but not but from unholy parents. And I discussed at length what that meant. How could you say such a thing that Rivka's prayers were not answered? So I discussed it at length back, back a few weeks ago when I spoke about this topic. But the follow-up question goes like this. Some people, unfortunately, use this story to compel and influence families not to let their daughters pursue Shaduchim unless the other family has great yichus. You know, since Rivka did not have great yichus and God didn't answer, so that's why we should not marry someone that doesn't have great yichus, which is pedigree. So it's having someone that comes from a family that has holy parents and holy grandparents. And this type of shidduch philosophy is unfair because it excludes Baal Tshuvas and Gerim from many potential shidduchim. People grew up in homes that either Tanek or Shanishbu. They didn't know better about Judaism. They were like what they call children born, born in captivity as far as Jewish Judaism goes. Or those that are Gerim converts. How do we reconcile this with what we, t- we were taught also in a previous parsha, where Yaakov hides Dina in a box because he's afraid Esau would want to marry her. So we're told Yaakov is punished. Why? We learn Yaakov is punished for this because if Dina would have married Esau, she would have had the potential to influence him to do tshuva. So Gezha families, Gezha families means families that come with yichus, direct, you know, exactly the parents come from distinguished families or Hasidic families and so on. Uh, so are these families doing something wrong by blocking a potential shidduch because the candidate has an uncle that is not observant on a, on a real level? Why aren't they punished like Yaakov was? Perhaps if they allowed the shidduch, the girl can have an impositive influence on her husband and his family members and his family members and influence them to do tshuva. So no, to use that Rashi about shidduchim is absolutely inappropriate, especially when you, we understand that Rivka was and as I explained then, what exactly was the me- meaning of that story? It's nothing to do with a lesson that we should not find, that we should avoid shidduchim with parents may have been bali or parents who may not even be observant on an open level. 
A shidduch you look for, and you see this from the Rebbe's answers, you don't see anywhere that that's an issue. I mean, I've talked about this many times about yichus. You could have someone with all the yichus, and nevertheless the person is uh, maybe not the best fit for your child, as a soulmate goes. You could have someone that doesn't have all that yichus, and is a perfect fit. We have to look at the person. We have to look at the personality. We have to look at the midas tevis. We have to look to who they are. And not, we're not talking about a story like Dina. No one suggests you have to marry someone like an Esau. That's another story, how we learn lessons from that. We're talking about now parents or grandparents. And remember, everybody, as the Rebbe pointed out so many times, no one is a beginner, quote-unquote. Everyone is a Ben Avram, Yitzchak, V'yankiv, Basar, Rivka, Rachel, Valeya. So our Yichus is excellent. It goes back all the way to the greatest people of all. The fact that people have gone through bizarre, bizarre twists and turns and journeys, it's another story. It's usually in God's hands. You have to look at personality. That's the first and foremost thing when it comes to Hashidah. And that's, what else can I add? That's the bottom line. Okay. Now let us go some other topics. Okay. <clears throat> Let's talk about crowdfunding campaigns. Okay, do I need to dominate every crowdfunding campaign? Why is it there so many crowdfunding campaigns going on now, this time of year? Do I need to give to every single one? If not, how do I pick and choose? Is there a halachic issue with turning away a campaign? Okay. Well, being that we are running a crowdfunding campaign, so somewhat of a negay bedover, somewhat subjective, but nevertheless, let me address it in a very direct way. So recently, in the previous year, you may be aware of it, maybe you're not aware of it, a new method is online funding. Being that you can reach people, not just have to go over to them personally, you can do an online campaign. So it's taken, become very popular in many organizations, and different institutions and different causes that do crowdfunding. They try to get different donors to give and then try the crowd, whoever is a constituent or the causes close to them or their friends and families to try to get donations. Now, when you have a lot of organizations, you're going to have a lot of these campaigns. In a way, they compete with each other. Because you can't give to all. Maybe some people can, and God bless them. So, so it's a good question. How do you address it from a, from a chassidish point of view? Now, tzedakah is a mitzvah. The same question can be asked if 10 people come over to you in shul and they ask you for a donation and you only have that much money, you have to make a choice. So either prioritize causes that are close to your heart, something close to your heart, or the one who came first, or some other way, or you split it in smaller parts. The same idea can be applied to campaigns. The things that are closest to our hearts, some people, for example, are close to chinuch, or something that they particularly benefited from, that doesn't mean stock shouldn't be given to all, but we're talking about prioritizing. So you have to talk to your mashpia, to talk to your mentor, review it. Now obviously there are times something comes up, you right away give stock, you don't sit and analyze, make chashbainus, and God will bless you to give, have enough to give everyone. But in case you want to prioritize, sometimes that's what you do. Now, can you give to everyone? Again, if God blesses you, you can, you try. Now, as far as these campaigns go, there are people complain 
How many people, how many calls can I get? How many emails, how many WhatsApps, how many different uh, texts? So it is annoying to some. You have to understand the organization's perspective is that each organization has its needs. But the truth is, and I say it even about our organization, we have our needs, but you have to make a choice where it's something you feel comfortable with. I would never want someone to give to a cause just because they're being pressured. It has to come from love. And I would hope all the organizations feel that way. So I think you have to just weigh all these things, recognize that the end of the year is a time when people either give their donations because of tax reasons or other calculations at the end of the year when they want to finally decide how much they're going to give that year, whatever the reasons are. So it's true that there's a lot of these campaigns. I wouldn't tell the organizations to stop doing it because they do have their needs and this is a method that works. God bless them. It's a method. Why not use every method possible? The fact there's so many, yes, is a calculation. I know some people who push it off to the next year or different months in the year, not December, not this season. But that's already a decision uh, both by the organization and the individual. But the main thing is, duck is a great mitzvah. And we know that nobody's ever gotten poor from duck. So any request made, you should definitely consider. And the Ebishter blesses. He blesses. He opens up, as the Friedrich Rebbe said, the Rebbe chazes over many times, that even if you don't have the capacity to give right now, when you make a to give and you give, God opens up new channels. So it really comes down to also betach and trust that God will open up new channels. And that's what really is the fundamental idea of real tzedakah. And Hashem will do even more. Asher, that as much as you give, God will bless you to have many, many times over all in good health, with all the blessings that come with the great mitzvah, the great mitzvah of Zedakah, as explained so beautifully and powerfully in chapter 37 in Tanya. Okay. A few weeks ago, we began talking about Shalom Bayis. So I want to continue, because many questions came in, in addition to literally hundreds of questions that I've already addressed. I just looked it up before this program to see. I mean, I, the list is so long. It's at least 40 different episodes of my life that I address Shalom Bayis, different aspects of it. You know, I mean, ultimately, maybe part of the funding that we will hopefully get from this campaign and other campaigns, we can ultimately bring all these programs together and organize in one place to have all these ideas so they're not scattered over all these programs. But meanwhile, they're there. For the record, they're all on record, so good. So there's a few more questions that came in. I want to address them. It's a good opportunity to do so. It's always good to talk about Shalom Bayis. But Shalom is the big bracha, clay magzik bracha, ha-shalom. In many ways, Zdokah is connected to Shalom because Zdokah is Shalom ben Adam l'chavere, ben Ishli l'chavere, ben between one person and another, because that's what Zedakah does. It balances the equation. The, the wealthy one and the poor one, or people may not be equal. By giving, we create the relationship, an achdus, and ultimately a shalom between human beings, which is why the, te- the whole Torah was given, as the Rambam writes, at the end of what? Hilchus Chaneke. So Taki's talking there about the mile of Ner Shabbos, that a candle of Shabbos represents shalom, Bias, whereas the candle of Hanukkah represents the miracle, Pesumen publicizing the miracle. But still interesting, the end of Hilchus Hanukkah, 
Shalom, Dela Shalom. Kalatera le nitna ela lasa shalom ba elam. Chanukah also is connected to Tzedakah the Rebbe brings. We see one of the reasons that some say Chanukah gelt, that it says in the Gemara, in Svarim, that the students, children, would go from house to house and collect Tzedakah and Chanukah, Mois. Okay. So Shalom Bayis. How could I learn to respect my husband? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for your interesting and thought-provoking classes. I've learned so much from them. My question is, how can I learn to respect my husband? I married a very nice and kind person. I love him very much. I really do. However, I do not and cannot respect him and so desperately want to. While my husband is be'etzem, a good person, fundamentally a good person, in the over two decades that we're married, he's hardly ever learned, meaning Taylor. I can count with my fingers how many times I've seen a safer taken off the bookshelf. In my home, growing up, every evening my father was sitting and learning. It would be one thing if my husband knew everything, but he really doesn't. Instead of getting, going to their father for help with Kodesh Kaid, with and Chayel school questions, talking about the children, our children come to me. I don't want to fill that role. It's very strange to me. There are times he says, Chitas Rambam. It's mostly to show off to me because I brought it up to him in the past. That he has to be a role model for the children or they will never be interested in it. But he really doesn't have a feeling for it and certainly doesn't learn it. Even davening, there are times that Mincha and Maiv aren't said. Another thing about my husband, keeping Allah doesn't mean much to him. I find the older he gets, when most people would become more reflective and the real things in life mean more to them, he's going in the opposite direction. Frankly, it's embarrassing in front of the children and in front of others. To add to all of this, we are shluchim. He sometimes talks in the middle of davening in front of people. He davens without a siddha most of the time in front of people. He makes pasha or other speeches without double-checking facts and says wrong things. He has no interest in giving shirim or doing other shlichus related things unless he's pushed to do so. He's ambitionless and has no major goals in life. He's perfectly happy with the status quo, which is sitting on his computer and iPhone all day long, basically doing nothing. I don't know if I should continue reading this, to be honest. It's getting depressing. And uh, I'm glad you love him unconditionally, but you really have a long list of complaints. Okay, but you know what? Being someone who's writing this, and maybe others as well, I'm reading it simply because it's a real fact on the ground, and I apologize because I'm really not comfortable reading it, to be, to be honest. And thank God there's no names. So let me just continue and just get through this. But it's a little, uh, what shall I say, it's a little difficult for me to read. Throughout the years, starting before the internet was around, I begged my husband to learn topics that he professed to know nothing about because... Bochim aren't taught these things like Nevi'im, Jewish history, but to no avail. I'm embarrassed when people ask him questions on regular Jewish simple Hasidic topics and he, has no, and he has no answers. He isn't stupid, he doesn't, doesn't care to learn and know. You may wonder, how is it that I married someone like this? Yeah, okay. Well, to be honest, I didn't know these things about him. He comes from a very good family of intelligent people, many of whom are very successful shluchim, he came very well recommended from his teachers and from his friends. 
So how was I or my parents supposed to know any of this about him? While the children were small, being involved in the daily grind, grind makes you have less time to be aware of these things. But now that most of the children are out of the house and getting older, I certainly have become more introspective and I notice all these things about my husband even more. I know that a wife isn't meant to be her husband's mashpia, mentor, and I know when I've tried to bring up some of these topics in the past, it didn't go over too well. And if it was, and if it was only for himself, I would understand that it's not my place or job to intervene in his frumkeit, or rather lack of it. But as a father and a shliach, he's a very poor example. It's very hard to watch. There may be people who will listen to this and think, she's crazy. Enjoy the fact that he's a good person and just forget the rest. And believe me, I know to appreciate that, knowing people who are very from super ambitious, but aren't mentioned. Mention means a mensch. Gentleman or per- appropriate person. But I so want to respect my husband. Is there any way that I can? Okay. Well, you say dec- over two decades married, so I'm assuming the children are a little older now, not babies. Even though I can't say for sure, maybe there are some younger ones. Generally speaking, in any matters like this, and of course I'll always qualify, it's case by case, and I don't know all the details, and I know people get annoyed when I say that, but that's a fact, and I can't avoid that because that's the reality. And I'm never going to go to, to, go, to, to uh, fall back on, on platitudes and generalities because this is lives. So generally speaking, the approach to matters like this is always to focus on the positive. You know, marriage is a complex thing, but it's also a simple thing. You're married to someone, and you did begin by saying you love him very much, a very nice and kind person. And then you have these challenges. So you have to remember that Abishta is the one that ultimately is Mizavik Zivugim, soulmates. You're married 20 years or more, over 20 years. That means there's something about this marriage that works. Even if it was one year, I would say that. But you stood under a chuppah, but 20 years with children. So there are plenty of virtues that your husband definitely has. You don't mention many of them except the fact that he's nice and kind. But he's a shliach, he's working with people. Now, of course we'd love to have all these qualities that you described there. But dwelling only on them is usually going to make more problems, especially in your own heart and soul. And it's not whether you're a mashpia of your husband or not, it's just a question of your attitude. I would advise, if I was your mashpia or mentor, I'm talking to you, the wife here, and I hope you do have one, is to focus and try to identify what are the qualities he has. Avis Yisrael is a big mitzvah. It's the biggest mitzvah of all. Don't dismiss that. Or other mitzvahs that he does. Yes, you grew up in a family learning, davening, the other things that you mentioned. Again, I'm not suggesting or trying to justify it shouldn't be done. Shouldn't try to influence. But I would first focus on all those positives and try to accentuate it, try to amplify it. Help your husband and support, bring that out of him. The better he feels about himself and the things that he's good, in, good at, the more likely mitzvah get at his mitzvah. One mitzvah will bring another mitzvah. This is a general approach that the Rebbe took in his answers and his advice in matters like this. Now, if you complained and said there's abusive matters, God forbid, or real things that he's not a nice person and you don't love him, whatever, that's another discussion how to get through that. But since then we have what to hold on to, and there's children, 
I would focus on that. Now, as far as the matters that are as you describe, I have to also say, not that I'm questioning what you say, is, is your accuracy of what you say, but people are subjective. It could be these negatives that have started eating at you are very amplified, and maybe it's not as bad as you're describing. Now, again, I always qualify that. I'm not, God forbid, in any way invalidating or questioning what you're writing. But you have to know, is it, would a person on the outside also say the same thing? So here comes the next point. Is there someone you can speak to that knows your husband well? And just get another perspective. What do you think? Not because you need, I'm not saying not to question your attitude. Clearly you're saying he didn't pick up a safer. That's an objective thing. But is it really as extreme as that? And maybe get advice from this person. How can you approach it? But I want to still focus on the first thing. To me, the key is that you be strong in your connection with your husband, that you can respect him for the things that he does have. To me, once that's in place, I assure you that other things will start falling into place. Will he become the great Lamdan that learns all day and so on? May not be, but it could become better. Because my concern is that even though he, you may feel your husband doesn't know your feelings about him, he may be more wiser than you think. And that itself can be somewhat undermining, but definitely not validating. That's why I feel the focus has to be completely on the positive. And wherever you can, bring in something that may be that way. You know, I mean, there are people that are going to come Friday night to the table or other situations. So maybe beforehand, you talk to your husband, maybe ask him a question like, maybe I'd like to have some explanation about a certain thing in the Pasha or some. Maybe your husband will give you a response and then you can have a conversation with him. That's another way to elicit it. Instead of saying, why don't you go learn? Or why are you not learning? Or, you know, and criticize that part, whether you say it with words or, you don't, or even without words. Because basically I would assume that your husband knows you as well and probably sensitive to your so-called negative attitude here. So that's the way I would approach it. And of course there's much more to be said when you speak to Amashpir, you speak to others that can help advise on this matter. And I, I would avoid you directly directing your husband or guiding him. If anything, have others do that. And I'm not saying you have to manipulate or maneuver, but try to inspire him through other ways and have others perhaps inspire him to grow in the areas that you feel he needs growth. That's the general approach. And above all, remember, Hashem blessed you. You stood under a chuppah. There's a third partner. And there are many beautiful things in your marriage, I am sure. And that's the most important thing you have to focus on. You have to be happy. Happy with your soulmate. Okay. What to do about feeling annoyed at my spouse's behavior? Okay, sounds same vein as we just said. Hi, Rabbi. We have been married for almost three years. We had beautiful moments and not such beautiful ones. As time goes on, I see something in my spouse that seems really hard to deal with. The fact that she acts socially in a way that I totally disagree with. Like she will always state whatever she thinks the truth is, when many times the right common sense thing to do is just to let it go. Live and let live. One quick example. At my family chat, she posts a picture of our daughter. Then family member says she's cute or gorgeous. She would say, there are other important adjectives to mention, like smart, kind, etc., meaning that beauty is not the main thing. 
I feel sometimes this obsessive pursuit for truth is too much. And I feel that everybody around us feels the same. As much as I try to explain how I feel, it doesn't seem to have an impact on her. That really, that's really sometimes, that really sometimes becomes a ma'akiv, like an obstacle, to the point that I feel disconnected and our marriage becomes something more technical-based on convenience. And I just continue my life kind of on a drift. I would really like to know if it would be possible to speak to you or you can go over or you could go over it on the podcast. But in that case, I would like you to ask you to rephrase the question to a shorter and less specific version. Thank you, Rabbi. So I definitely summarized and did not include everything. And hopefully it's a confidential and anonymous. But I will say that I think in any situation like this, the key thing is to remember that there are two sides to every story. You know, it could very well be that you are being obsessive, the other extreme, not letting your wife breathe. She has her style. I haven't read anything here, and that's why I expressed it, that I see this being a tremendous problem. If she says things that are inappropriate is one thing. It may not be your style. So why can't two people have different styles? Why should it be something that becomes a disconnect? I find that in relationships always it takes two to tango, as they say. And both ways, two to join together and also two to have conflict. Maybe there's some things you should just overlook. You're saying that she's so adamant with the truth. Maybe you're so adamant with her being adamant with the truth. That's also adamance. I would suggest letting go a bit and just letting people be. Live and let live, as you said, including your wife. And just see how it goes. If something that you feel really is something wrong, in a very loving and kind way, you could point it out. That would be the approach I would suggest. Again, being I don't know all the details. You know, I don't hear what your wife has to say in response. I don't know all the details, so it's hard for me to say anything conclusive. But this is my reaction, at least ostensibly, this approach. And yes, indeed, if you want to reach out to me or someone else, it may be good to speak to someone so they can hear, hear you out more, hear more details. And again, I'm not dismissing what you're saying. I'm just saying that there's more perspective to things in general. Okay. How do I deal with a spouse who has lost her faith? My wife stopped keeping Shabbos and going to mikveh in March. So far, she's only done it in private, so our three kids do not know about this, and neither does anyone else. She has had some tough pregnancies, which ended in late-term miscarriages, that has caused her to lose a moon in Hashem and second-guess a lot of things she used to believe about. Yiddishkeit. It has put a great strain on our marriage, and I don't feel like we are partners anymore. She doesn't want to talk to anyone about it. What can I do? Well, the first thing you have to do, which may not be what you want to do, is to show even more love than ever before. Every one of us goes through our ups and downs and our challenges, especially when you're dealing with an emotional, intimate level, matters of pregnancy, miscarriages. I mean, these are not simple matters. It's not something, okay, let's move on. It could be a strong justification for her being very hurt. And she needs more strength now, not more critique. And the strength is you and the, as the husband. 
I think you have to put a set aside your own feelings on this matter and just be there for her. She should feel that you are communicating with her. She should feel you're there. And yes, there are halachas, but remember the same Rambam I quoted before the end of Hilchas Hanukkah. The Ebershter says, Shalom is such a great thing, Shalom bias, that erase my name even. The Ebershter says, erase my name in the laws of Satan to preserve marriage, to preserve husband and wife, harmony between them. So I'm not suggesting, God forbid, that you embrace something that is a breaking halacha, but sometimes we have to overlook certain things, at least for now. It says, Mechal and Shabbos Achas. You sometimes desecrate one Shabbos, Kedei Lishmer Shabbos in order to protect and keep many Shabboses. So I'm not saying you should participate, but right now, my opinion, put aside and just be there for her. If this causes you separating, you're just going to create more problems because she needs you. Who else is a wife going to turn to if not her husband? It may be difficult because it may not be exactly as you like it, you know, when you see certain things. But we're challenged to get out of our comfort zones. This is a very important thing to remember. Your wife has to grow in her way, and she's let her talk. If she finds someone she can talk with, great. Right now she doesn't want to talk, so be it. But you have to overlook certain things because what's greater here is that your wife needs you. And the union between you two of you is also, between both of you, is a mitzvah as well. A great mitzvah. I would say the greatest of all. That's why Hashem actually says, erase my name. Not like go erase my name in order to preserve shalom bayis, harmony between husband and wife. But in case it comes to that, you have to make sure, you have to remember, just like pikuach nefesh, that if it's Yom Kippur, and a person is a threat of life and death, and there's nothing but to eat, a piece of chazer, on Yom Kippur, it's a mitzvah to eat it, because life is more important than Yom Kippur. Similar to that, Shalom Bayis. Again, I'm not saying to do that. You don't need to, to preserve Shalom Bayis. You don't need to eat Chazer and Yom Kippur. That's not what's necessary. But what's necessary is to be there. And the fact that even if she doesn't hear all your words and your feelings, she senses. She senses probably your distance. So now more than ever, and this is God in his mysterious ways, just like we learned from Yosef, his brothers did something horrible. They sold him to slavery. And Yosef says, you know what? Hashem sent me here. Hashem put you in this situation. And sometimes it's to come to learn that, what your, that your comfort zone in halacha, as important as it may be, it's your comfort zone. And sometimes we need to transcend our own comfort zone for something greater. And that makes you have a deeper relationship with God, not a lesser relationship. And how is that relationship manifest? Through your relationship with your spouse. That would be the way I would go about this. Instead of dealing with the, what you call lost faith or other things, the exact opposite. Be kinder, send her more gifts, be gentler, speak to her, be there for her. You'll be surprised what that can do. And the more you do it out of your comfort zone, I assure you, that will reciprocate. That's not why you should do it, but it will reciprocate because a person responds to love. You pour water on a flower, it blossoms. That's how it works. And the mere fact that you're not doing what would be comfortable to you, that alone wakes up a person because your wife will, will notice that you've gone out of your way to do something for her. What do you think that does? That evokes more love instead of you just being in your rigid place. So Teda and Mitzvahs, there are times we need that. Bechol to God of our comfort zone. Even our halachic 
and religious comfort zone. Okay. So, see this question. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, in a recent episode of your fantastic Sunday night show, you discussed what the, what the Alter Rebbe did differently to spread Chassidus than his predecessors was to bring it into Chochmah. And then you implied that Mitla Rebbe brought it into Bina. And you implied that the following Rabbeim each kept expounding on it, etc. Can I ask you for a deeper explanation of this concept? Would it be fair to say that Samach Tzadik brought it into Das? The Marash brought it into Chesed, the Rasha brought it into Gvura, the Rayats brought it into Teferis, and the Rebbe brought it into Netzach. Would we need three more generations to bring Chesedus into Hoid, Yusayr, and Malchus and complete the cycle into all ten spheres? If Malchus can represent royalty and Mashiach will be a king, does Chesedus need to be brought into Malchus before Mashiach can come? So, two parts to this question. Yes, indeed. Even though, as I also explained, this was last week, that the Moyer is one. Shal Sa'ir, the Rebbe says, the chain of light, because the Moyer, the source, the essence, all the Rabbeim are one. But in the way they gave off light, the way they each manifested in their generation, Alter Rebbe's Chachmeh, this is what the Rabbeim tell us, the Mitle Rebbe Bina. So indeed, their style of Chassidus and their approach and a way of presenting Chassidus, each one complemented that which came before. The Mitle Rebbe took the Chachmeh, the Nekudus, the relatively shorter points of the Alter Rebbe and developed into the Cheves Hanor, expansive river of Bina. Elaboration, upon extensive elaboration. The Tzemach Tzedek is Takadas. Das, Maftecha, the Kol Shiz, Das combines, so the, 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 the Tzemach Tzedek combined, Pshat, Rem, as Drew says, he grounded everything that the Alter Rebbe taught in the level of Das. That's being brief here. Interestingly, they, we, we skip Chesed Gvurit Teferis. The Rabbeim say that the Reb Marash is Netzach and the Reb Rashab is Hoid and the Mitler and the Tzemach and the, the Friedrich Rebbe is Yusod and the Rebbe Shvi is Malchus. Why that's th- that way, I've discussed a number of times. I've not seen explicitly. I think someone did point out to me that the Rebbe spoke about it once in those Shpizen and other places, but most likely because Chesed, Gvur, and Teferis are the main three emotions, but their applica- their applica- the applications of, the, of Chesed, Gvur, and Teferis is Netzach, Heid, Yisod. So it could be Netzach, Heid, Yisod includes Chesed, Gvur, and Teferis, essentially, right, left, and center. So then, yes, the, the Rebbe Marash, you can say, brought Netzach into Chesedis. I have not seen where it says Netzach, but L'chadchila Riber, is a form of netzach, of, uh, of drive. The Rebbe Ramarash was the first to create hamshechim, meaning a series of discourses. The Rebbe Rashab Hoid and the, Tzemach, uh, and, and the Friedrich Rebbe Yisod, I have not seen explicitly how that expressed itself in the Chassidus. The Rebbe Rashab was the Rambam of Chassidus. Is that a level of Hoid? That would need explanation. And Yisod... Yosef, the Yosef of the generation, Yosef, Friedrich Rebbe's first name, is Yosef, like a mashpia. So you could say he took the previous and was mashpia. Rebbe Malchus, that you could see. The Rebbe takes all the six generations of Chassidus and brings it to channeling it in an explanation that can be understood in Biyah, meaning to every person in Chutzah, a language that every person today on earth can understand. 
And as Malchus is, Malchus gathers together, but in that process also adds a dimension. So the Rebbe's Malchus in Chassidus is also Atzmiyazdik, because Malchus is on one hand less than but it's rooted in Keser. So the Etzim of Chassidus, where you see the, the, the elaboration on Yechidah Shebenefesh, Etzim HaNefesh, Atzmus, things that the Dirabetachtenim, the fundamental principles. Though the Rebbe talks about all of Chassidus, but very much the focus on the Atzmi, and that indeed is the seventh generation leading into Geula. So that's a brief explanation. Obviously, I didn't explain, especially Netzachet say because I have not seen it. I have to think about it. If anybody has any thoughts on it, I'd love to hear your feedback and suggestions, and I'll share it. If you find a source, even better. Will you see Netzachet say brought in Chassidus, as brought by the Rabbeim, explaining the Chassidus of these respective Reb Marash, Reb Rashab, and the Friedrich Reb. And of course, any other additions to this interesting and very fascinating concept. So with that, I bid everyone a very happy Hanukkah. It should be a mile and Bekedish Hanukkah. Be illuminated and warmed by the latest Hanukkah. May we learn its lessons in our personal lives and be walking and living flames that illuminate and warm our environments. And we should be Zechitakot Hanukkah leading us to the Beis Amidah Shashlish, Hanukkah's Beis Amidah Shashlishi, the third temple with the Meneda. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. My Life, Chassidus Applied. This has been My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 381. And finally, please, partner with us in our campaign. Go to giftofmeaning.com and contribute generously. Hi, my name is Chaya Bracha Rubin, and I'm a wife and mother. I'm an educator, and I'm a singer-songwriter. I don't know about you, but in the daily grind, in all the details that I have to take care of on a daily basis, um, I sometimes have these moments where I'm feeling like not as connected, not as inspired. And I know that if I if I look, if I'm looking for that inspiration, if I'm looking for a source. Um, of, of guidance, of comfort, of wisdom, I can turn to Rabbi Jacobson and the Meaningful Life Center. I can look on their website for a specific topic. I can search their many, many, many um, essays, articles. They produce so many books and it really is the Meaningful Life Center is the perfect name for the work that they do because they infuse my, at least on for me, they've infused my life with so much meaning and so much additional um, support. I am especially impressed with the work that they've done um, throughout the coronavirus pandemic. And even when we're in such a state of turmoil as not only as a Jewish people, but as a world, Rabbi Jacobson and the Meaningful Life Center came out with essay after essay, you know, live after live, you know, so much time has been poured into just giving and strengthening others on a really universal level. I feel like we can all relate to the incredible gift that the Meaningful Life Center is and how Rabbi Jacobson has become just a, such a trusted source of, of guidance, wisdom and inspiration. So I just ask that you, I know I'm going to donate to this campaign and I really ask that you join me. 
in supporting this incredible, incredible work that they do.